if anyone wants advice in writing, best way to get away with being an epic pantser is to be also a really, 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 um, really comprehensive and obsessive editor. Because if you if you pant something and it's, it's inconsistent, you can go back and rewrite it. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, it's Pam and just popping in to say that this is a rewind episode It's an edited version of a chat that my former podcasting buddy at Rights for Women, Kel Butler, had with Indigenous author and speculative fiction writer, award-winning speculative fiction writer, Claire G. Coleman. And I thought since it's NAIDOC week, this was a particularly great episode to put back out there again. Claire talks not only about the importance of writing spec fic, but writing it as a First Nations author and also about where she draws her inspiration from by, you know, actually going on country and learning about her own personal history in terms of her First First Nations heritage. And uh, there's a whole lot of great stuff in here on that particular topic and also on her writing practices, what it was like to win so many fabulous accolades for her first novel as a debut writer and then what it was like to follow up with her second novel, The Old Lie. So sit back, grab a cuppa, enjoy this NADOC week rewind and uh, Kel will see you on the Convo Couch with Claire G. Coleman. Today on the Convo Couch, I am chatting with acclaimed author Claire G. Coleman. Claire describes herself as a Noongar woman whose family have belonged to the south coast of Western Australia since long before history started being recorded. She writes fiction, essays and poetry, while mostly travelling around the continent now called Australia in a ragged caravan towed by an ancient troopie. You'll find that on her own website. Claire is the author of Terra Nullius and The Old Lie both speculative fiction novels steeped in a devastating personal history. Terra Nullius poured out of Claire in three months while travelling around Australia. The manuscript won the Black and Wright Fellowship and was nominated for the Stella Prize and the Aurealis Award. Today, Claire talks about the creative momentum that led to that first book and writing speculative fiction from a First Nations perspective. Thank you for joining me on the Convo Couch today, Claire. No problem. Thank you. Let's go to writing speculative fiction. I'm actually going to start from where I would normally end this interview and ask, has this moment in time, this sort of convergence of your fiction and your reality coming together in your lived experience, is it changing how you're looking at writing now? It's certainly interesting. It's funny because there's this that running joke about being stranger than fiction. Well, at the moment, um, 
truth is in a way more, not necessarily stranger than fiction, but truth is more vicious than fiction. Mm. I don't think anyone could have written a novel or something. Well, maybe they could have, but it would be very unusual for someone to write a novel where a virus has forced the entire world to voluntarily lock themselves in their houses and not go outside. Mm. There's been fiction written of where that sort of social change happens over generations. I can't remember the name of the story, but Isaac Asimov wrote a story about a society where everyone had teleport doors. Oh, yes. And then eventually they didn't have to go outside ever, so they were just kind of teleporting in and out of houses. So I can imagine it's it's really difficult to write science fiction when, again, we're living in we're living through science fiction. So <laughs> it's quite difficult. Uh, but on the other hand, um, watching the social change kind of gives a gives a a perspective on how our idea of how an apocalypse unfolds can be uh, more easily understood. It, this is the first, I suppose, historically the first time of watching a pandemic apocalypse unfold in real time. Mm, mm. As you've said, the First Nations people have experienced multiple apocalypses throughout their life. That you don't see an apocalypse as a single event. You've described it as as a challenge people have to survive through, back to that survival element we were talking about. Do you, So you're looking at this, you're in the middle of it now, and so you're, as a writer, you're watching to see how humans come out of it? I am, and I, I think... What people don't understand about cataclysmic or apocalyptic change is that in a way you can consider society to be one society before it and a different society after it. Yeah. And I don't think we're going to get through this COVID-19 isolation the same people as when we went into it. I don't see how we could possibly be the same people on the other side of it, not just the, the places that have had and are still having apocalyptic death but if you think about New York will never be the same again. I don't think Australia is ever going to be the same again. I think it's weird because I think Australia was never going to be the same again after the, the bushfires of summer. Yeah. And then we've had another kind of cataclysmic event long on, on the back of it. I'm just interested from your perspective, what are your fears and your hopes with what's happening in society for First Nations Australians? My fears are that, well, Firstly, uh, Aboriginal people have historically had much worse health outcomes than the rest of the community. Mm. That's concerning. And also, First Nations Australians are, of all segments of the Australian community, the most reliant on arts and culture as a way to raise money or as, a, as, a wor- mm. as work. And the arts has possibly been the industry that's been hit hardest by this. Maybe two yeah. been slightly harder, but arts following closely upon it and those are the fears but the hopes are that perhaps we can use first nation knowledge systems on surviving cataclysms or or surviving the apocalypse to position ourselves as educators within society not as people who are suffering worse than everybody else maybe we can rest of australia will realize that what we're good at is surviving well, individualistic thinking 
from my understanding, is just not a part of First Nations community. Is that right? That is true. The First Nations communities or First Nations culture is built more on, first and foremost, on notions of connection and respect, on where you fit within society and showing respect to people you should respect and being respectful of people who should respect you. But most importantly, it's in this idea that it's not who you um, who you are that's important as in an individual. It's who you're connected to so that your connections can be used to make society stronger. So from that point of view, Indigenous people uh, have this kind of collective idea that will be helpful because we need to head towards more collectivism now anyway, and Indigenous societies have always been good at it. On the other hand, mm. that, that collectivism is a risk because there's a situation with people wanting to return to community, and if someone gets sick before they return to community, they can take the disease back to community. And that's concerning, which is why I suppose when it first hit the Northern Territory, I don't know if you heard of this, but when um, COVID-19 first hit the Northern Territory, the local Aboriginal town councils, every every town in the Northern Territory has an Aboriginal kind of cultural council who look after the Indigenous needs in that area. Mm. Those Indigenous councils set up services to take anybody who wanted to go home to community, take them home before the disease hit the area. So they were transporting people, they were basically giving people money or assistance to get them home before they got sick. That's how you survive once again. You bring everyone together and you work as a community, as a team, and and it's ensuring people's safety and survival, which is not something that I see a lot in my own colonial background. I'd like to go back to Terra Nullius, if that's okay now. So both of your books are inspired by your discovery of your history and by your grandfather. And Terra Nullius, which is an incredible book, and I'm I'm not going to say a lot about it, but it will make your brain spin when you read it. You You think you're somewhere and then you're not, and you're somewhere completely different. And that's all I'm going to say. That book with so many complexities, it took you nine months in a caravan to write and you say it poured out of you like an idea was looking for you as a vehicle and you were just the vessel for this story. Start there and just tell us about that. Sure. Well, it was actually, I've been, it's been pointed out to me by my partner that it probably wasn't actually nine months more like four months to get the first draft out. And she just shouted from the other room that it was three months to get the first draft out. I'm not sure. I went to my ancestral country and visited the town where my grandfather was born. And we didn't know much about my family history at this point, but we found it in, in a little museum in what was originally the town dance hall, because, you know, towns don't have dance halls anymore. We found an entire wall of photos of my extended family, photos that I'd never seen and my dad had never seen. And so we got talking to the people there and they they encouraged us to return to see the opening of a memorial to the massacre that happened just out of town. And when I was there, I, I heard the full story of the massacre for the first time. I knew there'd been a massacre in that area. I didn't know how big the massacre was. I just knew there was a massacre. And I think that day at the massacre memorial opening, when I met members of my Noongar family I'd never met before, 
And I heard the story of the massacre in detail for the first time ever. And it was then that kind of I realized that not only was there a massacre in the town where my grandfather was born, but my grandfather's uh, grandmother's extended family would have been involved as it would have been, would have been killed. Yeah. So the idea that was to become Terranullius just popped into my head like it had been waiting in the wings and it just, and I just, I couldn't stop writing it. I wrote in this incredible fever to, to get this story finished. And you hadn't written before. I'd written some poetry, but no, I hadn't written anything. I'd never been published before. And this, this just came to you in this moment and you went back and you just started, was it with a computer or was it with pen to paper? How did it flow uh, from you? I had a computer, but I had nowhere to charge it in my caravan because I was in a caravan traveling. Mm. But I had an iPad that had a car charger. So I wrote it on an iPad with a little Bluetooth keyboard, a secondhand iPad 2 to be exact. And because this is multi-dimensional storytelling, multi-dimensional as in the storytelling itself, mm. and you've never written before and this is pouring out of you. So yeah. uh, it's hard to talk about without giving things away, isn't it? It no, really no, is. It is. It, it, what, it, what it comes down to, I think, is the, the story, all, all the layers and complexity in the story were already there before I started writing. How did that come together in your head and your writing? Did you write it in sequence or was it bits and pieces or how did you bring all those layers together? Mostly it was in sequence. There was the, except the first draft of the, of I suppose you call it the middle, the most important scene, the first draft of that, which is, as you know, it's somewhere in the middle. We won't say what the scene is. But the first draft of that was written first and the first draft of the last scene was written soon after, straight after that, pretty much. But the rest of it was um, written in sequence. It's funny that the very last scene, pretty much, was one one of the first things I wrote and it is the least altered scene of the entire book, virtually unedited, because it just, it, um, I think I nailed that scene pretty much straight away. And that one's one of the ones that said the least edits. So that just came to you complete? Yeah, the, the, the very last thing came to me in a certain place. I, went, I was at a place, I looked around, and in a way, sometimes with scenes and the places I was in at the time kind of um, fed each other. The yeah. scene existed. Yes, because of yeah. where you were when you got inspired in the first place as right. well. And that very last scene, I was standing in next to my car in a certain spot and I jumped back into my, I jumped into my caravan and grabbed my iPad and typed up that scene on the, on the side of the road. The characters, did they come the same way? Did they just come as they were or did you have to get to know them? Some of the, oh, I had to get to know all of them. As Jackie, he didn't really need to change much. Some of them just had to be there like, like they were. Um, but a couple of them didn't, they didn't, I suppose. I, I do a thing when I'm writing I call backfilling, which is when you go, you, it's like you're levelling some ground and you look, you look back and you go, oh, that bit's got a hole in it and chuck some dirt in <laughs> I, um, A couple of the characters, I needed them later in the book. And so I added them and then I had to go back in and insert them earlier so they so, so it makes sense. 
So was that in the the editing process? Or was that when you'd written it and then went, oops, hang on a minute, and this is the backfilling part as you're writing? Yeah, I'll, I'll backfill it as I go, yes. Yeah, smooth things out in the edit. So I did a, a ridiculous amount of editing, like an obscene amount of editing. I firmly believe that, that the first draft is the art of writing, but the craft is the edit. Yeah. You spend more time and you need more craft skills doing the edit than you do during the first draft. But you sent the first draft out as the manuscript for your application for the Black and White Fellowship. Is that correct? So it's funny the words first draft, uh, uh, they're funny words because to a writer the first draft is the very first time their story is finished and complete. And they do a couple more edits before sending it to a publisher. When a publisher gets it, they call that the first draft. So I edited it four, three or four times before I sent it to Black and White on my own though without any anyone else looking at it. And then after one that, it went through more edits than I can actually remember, lots of edits. Yeah, so, yeah, it was a first draft by the um, way the publishers, well, the publisher looked at it when I sent it to um, Black and White, but it was, I'd been working on it. I'd, I'd rewritten it a couple of times by that stage. So when you sort of had this inspiration and then the flurry of writing for three months and then you've you've got this book, how did that feel? Like, did you sit there and go, oh, my God, I've just written a book? Basically, yeah. <laughs> and, of course, at that, stage, at that stage, I had no idea whether or not I was a good writer. Hmm. Well, you because had no yardstick, my... really, did you? No, I'd never written a book before. I'd never published anything before. So I hadn't even um, published poetry or essays in journals. Did you want to write a book? Is this something that had been a dream of yours? It was, and I had a a 20,000-word manuscript already on my laptop when I came up with the idea for Terra Nullius. And I don't think I've got that in that manuscript anymore because um, I don't even have that laptop anymore, so it's probably gone. Don't, I don't regret having abandoned my other manuscript, but I, I, yeah, I had a, a manuscript I wanted to write while I was travelling, mm. but I didn't expect it to happen like that. Had you decided that you were going to go for trying to, so you're going to write a book and try to become a published writer on this trip? Well, I wanted to try and write on the trip. I, I want, I'd, I wanted to be a writer all my life. It's one of those things you go, I want to be a writer, and everyone goes, don't be silly, no, no one makes it as a writer. And they're right, no one makes it as a writer. It was one of those things that I wanted to do in my life that I never imagined I'd actually be able to achieve. I didn't think I was going to get a, actually write a book on the world travelling, I thought I'd like to, but I didn't think I would actually actually would do it. That makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. And did was it always going to be speculative fiction? Because I know that you love to read sci-fi and spec fiction. Mm-hmm. So was it always going to be that was the genre you were going to write in or was that also kind of just a surprise that came out of you? The novel I was writing before that was, was science fiction. I can't remember the plot. I just remember it was science, it was science fiction. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I was always going to write speculative or science fiction. Mm. What I didn't expect is that my, that Terminalius would be considered to be literary speculative fiction or be kind of in that fertile, fertile ground between sci-fi and literature. I didn't expect that because I didn't know enough about publishing to know that generally it's considered a bad idea to write science fiction in Australia. 
I did not. I did not know that. But it's got a really loyal readership. Hugely loyal. Sounds like mad. Science fiction sounds like mad worldwide. The reason they say not to write science fiction in Australia is because Australian publishers don't even try particularly hard to compete with American science fiction. But I don't think publishers um, mention often that the reason not much science fiction um, gets published in Australia is because doesn't get picked up. Also, Australian publishing, let's face it, a lot of our publishers are reliant on the notion of of trying to get a book picked up for the international market. Yeah. Because the Australian yeah. market isn't that huge. And, again, Australian science fiction doesn't get into other countries quite around particularly well. Well, I think one of the extraordinary things about the way you use science fiction and speculative fiction is the way that you use it as a reflection of history. And I know that that gets done quite a bit, but I think you use it in a way that allows truth to come through and be digested without it instantly dividing. It allows it allows people to be able to step away from their own bias, I think I'm trying to say, and see our history from an outside perspective. Does that is that what you're trying to achieve? Well, when I started writing Turner, the idea was uh, to write a novel that would help outsiders to Indigenous history understand how it felt to be colonised. That was my aim. I just couldn't make until the point where the story of Terranalius came to me. I couldn't work out a way to do it. So that's what was brewing within you. Yeah. It was that, that you wanted somehow a vehicle. Yes. I got irritated at people saying, oh, colonisation was so long ago or colonisation was was peaceful or you're all better off now that the after the English came. Those three, those three statements are all lies. So I wanted people to understand how much those statements are lies and understand that it's not acceptable to continue for for this country to continue to think that way. Mm. In South Africa, after apartheid, they had the concept of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission because the government decided that they can't correct the damage done by their past unless they accept what their past is. Australia is not ready to look into the past and, and say, this is what happened, this is what we did, and work out a way to fix it. Australia still is in denial about what this country's history was. Yeah. And I think the rejection of the Uluru Statement of the Heart is a classic example of that. Every other country on earth has um, something else to celebrate as a national day. We're the only historically colonial nation that has the day of invasion as the national day. I said that once on, on social media. Someone from America said, we celebrate Columbus Day. It's like, yeah, sure you do. But that's not their national day, mm. Independence mm. Day. Very true. Well, let's take this and talk about then the First Nations influence on speculative fiction and sci-fi because you've spoken about how uh, colonial science fiction is just in its essence, how its whole approach is highly colonial. It's always about invasion and colonising another planet and finding something livable and assuming that it doesn't already have a species or a culture living there and that that's just reflective completely of our culture and our, our planet here on Earth. So 
First Nations writers would come at that with a completely different perspective. So, yeah, talk to us about that and what that means for the genre. Well, I think the the genre, not only has it traditionally been colonial, it's also been quite racist. An example I use is Star Wars. And Star Wars is not, when I talk about racism in Star Wars, I'm kind of making the what's considered to be a dubious move of, of, of conflating alien species with race, which is often overdone in, in analyses of science fiction. But in Star Wars, if you think about it, there's only one of the hero characters, ones who are important to the story, who the story follows, there's only one non-human and it's a non-speaking role, it's Chewbacca. In Star Trek, the, um, the original Star Trek, there's only one non-human, he's a Vulcan who's just basically a human with pointy ears. Mm. <laughs> so, when you think about it that way, science fiction has always had a race problem and it's had a gender problem. Now, what First Nations people are saying to do is we're kind of refusing to accept the way that this is looked at and thinking, well, why can't we write science fiction that's more interested in the people who are colonised rather than the colonisers? Why can't we? Talk about, like, well, one thing that particularly interests me is talking about the little people who are ignored by the story, mm. if that makes sense. I mean, what I, I mention often is in, in Star Wars, there's this idea that, that the Jedi are supposed to be this holy order who are peaceful and better than everyone else and, and great people. But Obi-Wan Kenobi in a bar chopped someone's arm off just for harassing him in a bar. Mm, yeah, and I, and I don't think about Obi Wan Kenobi. So I often think what happened to that poor guy? His arm chopped off. <laughs> it's like, yeah, and it's I think not, that, and, and it's not where people usually go, is it? No, they don't think. What about that poor guy? His arm. Sure, okay, he was a bully and a bit of a bastard, but um, surely Obi Wan Kenobi could have chopped the gun. That's what I say all the time. He could have chopped the gun in half, which is. He didn't have to, if he's that good with his, with his lightsaber, he didn't have to chop his arm off. So I think about things like that and I think about the one, the classic one people pointed out, which is apparently Captain Kirk was named, was based vaguely on Captain Cook. Well, if only Captain Cook followed the prime directive from Star Trek, of not, the prime directive is don't interfere with cultures more primitive than yours. If only Captain Cook had followed that rule. So I, I think... What I'm rambling towards is the notion that not only could Indigenous people reframe some science fiction, but I think for our society to grow up, all of our stories need to be reframed by the, the victims rather than the victors. Because what humans are more than anything else is we are storied creatures. We tell stories to each other and to ourselves, and our stories define who we are to ourselves and to others. Therefore, the way to change the way people think is to change their narrative. And the way, and I think not only is it possible for First Nations writers to do that, but I think it's heritage. Uh, and science fiction, the reason I write um, science fiction, I call it the Star Wars theorem, which is the average age of um, humans right now is younger than, or the average age of Australians is younger than Star Wars. Oh, so really? Star Wars, yes. Star Wars, is 40, Star Wars is like 45 or something, 46 years old, and the average age of Australians is 37. That just makes you feel old, doesn't it? 
<laughs> so, so you think about it that way. Our Campfire Legends, our Campfire Legends is science fiction movies. Yes, of course. Yeah, it's all just it's all just understanding, trying to understand the world. I think through the process of story. And we don't. Uh, the stories we use aren't things like War and Peace or the classic novels of our great grandparents' generation. The stories we use to define our world: Star Wars and Star Trek and the Frankenstein movies. Mm. Well, you have said that speculative fiction is one of the most powerful political tools that we have in fiction at the moment. It is. The thing about speculative fiction and, and what makes it so powerful is the ability to weave the world around your concept. Oh, yes. You come up with a story and weave your world around it, and therefore you can create an entire world where the world itself is didactic. Yes, and you can spin everything around because there are no rules. If you think about, for example, The Handmaid's Tale, it's not the story of The Handmaid's Tale that teaches us a lesson. It's actually the world building. And the story is just to unfold the world. Oh, my goodness. I never considered that world building. You're so right. And even Charlotte Wood's natural way of things is a similar thing. She's created a world there. If, that's the other thing. People people always, always talk about science fiction, speculative fiction and fantasy authors being um, focusing on world building. Well, everybody does world building. Yeah. Anyone who writes a story does world building, you have to do world building because you have to, even if your world building is building the relationships of the people in your story, that's still world building. It really is. I'd never thought of it that way. I love that. That was like one of those mind-blown moments there. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> so in building your world, the world in Terra Nullius, did that come easily and naturally? Did you see them? Where did the landscapes come from? Uh, obviously history, but... <laughs> The thing about the, my, my world building is most people would be shocked to hear this, but I've, I never actually consciously or comprehensively world build. The world of both Terranalius and the old lie, just the world, the story world that is in my head, not something I've sat down and written details about. Like just, they just, it's like the world is only there in some way for the characters to exist in, but it's, it's kind of in my imagination and I don't know how, sometimes I'm not sure how I maintain internal consistency because I never write down a plan for my world. Really. It just happens. You just pantser the world as well as the story. I do. I'm a total pantser. I am the pantsers pantser. <laughs> but, the, the thing, but the thing is, the way I, the only way if someone wants to, if anyone wants advice in writing, best way to get away with being an epic pantser is to be also a really, 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 um, really comprehensive and obsessive editor. Because if you, if you pant something and it's inconsistent, you can go back and rewrite it. So you don't make any notes about different characters, different species, different... If I want to chuck things like that in, what I do is I write a scene that explains it to me, to myself, and then sometimes those scenes don't make the final cut, but at least I've written a scene with a character or a world or environment in it that helps me understand what that place is. And I think it's because not don't just believe that we are, we are people of story. I live that we are people of story. I, I think that the best way to make sure you understand a world is actually write it. So you're building it around yourself as you go. I think the experience of writing something is quite painful because the easiest way for me to write a story for a way for, that people feel it well is to feel it myself. And I've said before to people that if I 
life is seen and it's not, I don't feel emotionally blasted at the end of an important scene, it needs to be rewritten because it obviously isn't going to work. Because if it doesn't hurt me, it's not going to hurt anyone else. So there's scenes in Terranullius that needed to be extremely traumatic and it traumatised me to write them. What did you do in those moments? Like, So if you're writing a scene and it's traumatising you to write it, how do you protect yourself as a writer in those moments? I don't. Mm. I don't. I just, I just let it, I just feel it and let myself feel it. But then often, funny thing is if I'm um, writing something traumatic, the trauma goes away really, really quickly quickly after I finished the experience of writing it. And when you're when you're feeling really ill, mm. go to, when I, go to like, I go to bed at night and I get up in the morning and I feel on top of the world. <laughs> like, yeah. It's almost like I've had a good cry and I feel better now. A purge. It's, it's like a, a purge. purge. It's never easy. Well, you were saying that you tried to give an impressionistic view of your yes. landscapes because mm-hmm. you find that that makes places more unsettling for the reader. Yes. Can you explain that a bit? Sure. There's there's a couple of there's a couple of parts to that. First, firstly, I used landscape like a character, and I used it as a way to not only give an emotional positioning for the audience. So, a landscape that's bleak gives them a bleak kind of emotional reaction. So, not only was I trying to give people an idea of how they should feel using landscape, I suppose, in the same way that a filmmaker uses soundtrack Mm. but also the way I wrote landscape was used to tell the audience the personality of the characters how they react to different landscapes the way you know about characters is how they react to each other and in that way I treated landscape like it's one of the characters that the way people react to the landscape is the main clue of what sort of person they were so and I've done that in I did that in the old lie as well the idea that um, landscape is, I suppose, our, our main way of understanding the world is, is by looking at the places we are in and therefore our way of understanding each, um, other people in, the, in my books is by giving people an idea of what someone has to direct in the landscape. On the other hand, the, the other reason it's kind of impressionistic is there's no way anyone would be able to track my the movements of the characters by where they are in the physical landscapes of the country I was writing about because I moved everything. Yes. <laughs> it, it didn't suit my story for the landscapes to actually line up with time. It more suited my story to have landscapes meet up with parts of the story. The look of a landscape might have made up part of the story. So there's times when when people are in one place, people go, yeah, but they can't have gone from that landscape to the other landscape next to it because they're travelling the wrong direction. Mm, mm. Oh, yeah, I know that, but I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but also what you're sort of speaking of there in terms of landscape and connection and movement and all of that, that, that from my understanding is also something that's firmly grounded in First Nations culture and thinking. Yeah, it is. Uh, and although I, I mean... Historically, I did not grow up um, within an Indigenous community or even knowing I was Indigenous, which is a, a complicated life experience for anybody. But I think I, I got my understanding of landscape from my dad, and my dad um, is very firmly embedded in place. For me personally, the way I, when I think of happy times, generally the easiest thing for me to think of is a place where I was when I was that happy. 
Mm. I don't know whether it's my upbringing from my dad, whether it's genetics for being indigenous or whether it's just me but but places are extremely important to me personally and i don't understand i cannot understand the world without understanding where those landscapes are so they're your framework yeah they, they have they're my framework to understand the world and my other framework is stories so i suppose landscape and story is all that i care about yeah and that comes out so strongly in your own books so it makes complete sense Moving on, I would like to have a little chat about the old lie, mm-hmm. and which is another one that, as I said before, was inspired by your grandfather as well and his story. So, do you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, the same. It was only a few weeks after I came up with the idea for Terranulia. I visited my grandfather's grave again with my dad, and. My grandfather's grave was unmarked. Now, my grandfather was a, a World War II digger, and it, there was, as everyone would no doubt know, there's absolutely no chance generally of a World War II digger not having a soldier's gravestone on their grave. My grandfather didn't have one, and then a bit of research later, I found out that no Aboriginal graves in WA has them. And then a bit more research, I found out that. Um, Aboriginal soldiers weren't given soldier settlement land or uh, war pension or any of the other benefits of being a soldier. And also that I read in a book that historically and Aboriginal um, families had the children taken away while the their father was at war in World War Two because the they were declared the children were declared to be without a father. Because the father was at war, and this happened to Aboriginal families in WA as well, to Nongar families, and added all that up, and I just it, it, I came up with the idea for the old lie when I put all those things together. So I was writing about the black diggers and how they were mistreated, but being but I thought it would be easier to tell the story in a way if I put it in space. It's easier to tell the story is I don't like the idea of of writing a novel and then getting and then suddenly someone saying. No, that, that battle was a different date, what you put it at. Actually, yeah, what people are a bit like that, aren't they? they are Especially like nowadays with Google. <laughs> and someone once in, in yeah, <laughs> someone interviewed me once and they said and like they said something really interesting that by putting writing about the past, but writing about it set in the future, it frames the present. Yeah. And I thought that was perfect. Clever. Yes. I thought that was quite clever that this idea of writing about the past but setting it in the future enables people who are in the present to look at the look at it and understand imagine what happened to people in the past because they're thinking about the future. I like the idea of doing that. And I, I like the because I think if you if you said it in the if I wrote about black diggers in the past, Australians who are kind of allergic to the idea of people talking about Aboriginal suffering in the past go, oh, but that was in the past. Mm. So I didn't put it in the past. I put it in the future. And we do have an unhealthy sort of veil of illusion over certain aspects of of our diggers and our history that it's the rose-coloured glasses element that we're never allowed to touch that story, even if it's wrong. I know, and it it is wrong. I, when you tell people how black diggers were treated, everyone's horrified. When you when you tell people something that generally Australians don't know, that the and you might not know this. I don't know if you've really heard the interviews or mentioned it before. Aboriginal soldiers who went away to the Boer War 
which some did. They were, were given a choice either they were um, servants of officers who were forced to, to go over during the Boer War to South Africa, were not allowed to return to the country because of the White Australia policy. And, and some of them have never been found. They've kind of, they integrated into the South African black communities and stayed there because they were not allowed to come back. Historians have been digging into that and they don't know how many, they do know that soldiers, Aboriginal soldiers went over and they know they weren't allowed to come back, but they don't know how many. Uh, wow. And that, that one, that, that one's, that's horrific. It's That's a real insult. My grandfather fought in World War Two, and so did all his brothers and his cousins, and his uncle fought in World War One. His uh, Nunga uncle. So once again, this the old lie sprung up as a context to be able to have that conversation. Yes, it did. Or I don't think there's. Um, I think it's in important. It's a it's a useful tool. Let's just put it that way. It's a very useful tool for me to be able to have conversations or start conversations that people don't want to have by putting them into speculative fiction novels. Why aren't more, well, two First Nations Australians, do you think, writing in this genre and more women writing in this genre? Or is it that it's, you know, just racism and sexism? <laughs> well, yeah, there is that. And, well, I think more women are doing it now. When... When Taranalias got you know, shortlisted for the uh, Stella Prize, mm. there were, it was also shortlisted for the Aurealis Best Science Fiction Novel Award. And in, of the six shortlistees in that award, there was only one man on, on that year. So it's an inc- it, is on the, it is on the rise, um, uh, women writing speculative fiction in Australia. The, you can still count mm. the published um, female speculative fiction authors on one hand, probably. <laughs> and I think the um, the idea that um, Aboriginal um, people don't write speculative fiction that we are people are starting to it's an, inc- an increase in it. The reason we haven't, and this is, I think this is true of anyone from minority backgrounds in Australia. There's been an expectation, in my opinion, in the Australian publishing industry, that not only should people of minority backgrounds write own voices books, but in fact we should be encouraged to write that. That people are interested in kind of memoir and literary fiction about the communities in which people live rather than the, the things that people might want to read like like speculative fiction. It's not usual that people who are not kind of uh, straight white young men, it's unusual for us to write science fiction or speculative fiction, I think. It probably is technically too. It makes you a unique role model. For so many other young writers out there, I think so. How did it feel when you got nominated for the Stella for Terra Nullius? Well, that was pretty surreal, and it was actually a surreal year for the Stella Prize. It was so weird. Firstly, I knew I'd written speculative fiction, and until until then, speculative fiction had never done well in in any of the major literary prizes. And also, I, I it was a debut. I didn't expect to do that well. And if you think about this, the Stella that year, of the um, six shortlistees for the Stella Prize, two of us were also shortlisted for the Aurealis Best Science Fiction novel. Mm. And that year on the Aurealis Best Science Fiction novel, there were, of the five novels that got Aurealis Best Science Fiction novel shortlisting, four were marketed as literary fiction, not as speculative fiction. Really? And 
and one and that year of the Orialis Awards, one of the two of the Orialis shortlistees were also shortlisted for the Stellar Prize and had never been won ever. And that year also, the winner of the Orialis Award was the first no- novel shortlisted for the Orialis and longlisted for the Miles Franklin. So that year was, was the kind of the year that Australian speculative fiction broke out into the mainstream. So you you were nominated for the Stella Prize, nominated for the Aurealis, and so when you you wrote Terra Nullius, that's all happening. So when were you writing the Old Lie? Was that straight after Terra Nullius? The moment the moment that Terra Nullius last copy edit went to the publisher, which, as you know, you might know, between a copy edit being finalised and publication dates, normally around three months. As soon as I I sent in my last copy edit, that very next day I started writing The Old Lie. Was that just same kind? Was that the same kind of process you went through writing The Old Lie? Yeah, it was just pantsed out, but it took longer. It was like nine months or something. But I was book touring at the time. Did you find writing the second book a different experience because this wasn't your first time anymore? You're obviously not in a caravan for a few months just writing, you're, you're touring around. Was it a really different experience for you? It was It was different, yeah. There was a couple of, mostly it was psychologically different because I knew I could write by then. I won the Black and White Prize, which was for, and when it was before it published, but yeah, but I'd been published, so I knew I could write a bit. So that so it was less scary in that way. But also knew that by the time I finished the old lie, Terranalius had been like nominated for everything. Mm. So by the end of the process, I was getting quite scared that it would never that I would never write anything as good as Terranalius again. Ah, yes, the weight of expectation. Now the old lie hasn't been as successful as Terranalius at the awards. Nowhere even close to as successful at the awards. Or nor has it so far sold better than Terranolius, but it's been reviewed at least as positively or maybe more so. So it, that just, just goes to show that expectation is impossible to gauge. And I don't know. Yeah. So all I can, but basically the success of Terranolius and the different sort of success for the old lie in combination have taught me to just write the bloody thing and see what happens. This is really complicated. In all, Terranolius, so the old lie, reviewed better than Terranullius. Uh and also it got it had a way, way, way more buzz. Because the success of Terranullius meant everyone was excited for the old lie coming out. But then when the reviews came out, the reviews of the old lie in the newspapers and stuff like that were all positive. But the thing is, and oh, this is one of the conversations that writers prizes are weird. Mm. You never know which books are going to do well in the prizes. Certainly for you to have had as many awards mentioned as Terranullius is certainly unusual, and the old lie has not had one. Yeah. So, <laughs> what we don't say to um, the people who want to be authors, there's no way to guess how you're going to do in the awards. Absolutely no way at all to guess. So how was the process of publishing? Because that was a whole new thing for you as well, not only getting the fellowship and writing the book, but then you're going through the process of publication and launching and doing book tours. What was that like? That's a whole world change. The the book tour thing was was frankly um, extremely bizarre. I'd never stayed 
in a hotel before my book tour. I hadn't flown in a plane more than, I think I'd flown three times in 10 years and then suddenly I was flying every week. So it was very strange. And I went from being someone who made very little impact on the world around me except for to my friends to somebody who um, is doing media and book touring. So it was all extremely bizarre for me. Wow, what a head spin. It was insane. And somebody told me once that, was that when I was Peter, the author Peter Politi, he said the first time you go into a hotel and book tour, you think, do I even belong in this place? And that's how I felt for two years. Imposter syndrome. Totally. It, it, it's, the imposter syndrome at book touring is even worse than it is in, in actually publishing. I think it's because, you know, you get, you, go, you, get, um, you get off a plane, you haven't flown a plane for ages, you get off a plane, you walk down, there's someone holding up your name on a sign, you picked up oh my car, taken into a, to a four-star hotel generally, put in a hotel room, and then the next day you've got to talk to people, but you get this whole world of this kind of the middle-class world and being paid for by other people. It's really strange life. And then you get to a place which is almost seems to be my, my native habitat, which is um, Writers Festival Green Rooms. It's like... <laughs> It's like finding that the, the kind of the, the gang hangout you've always wanted. <laughs> hey, how is your part? And the main encouragement I give to other writers is they don't, nobody knows how good a writer they're going to be until they write. So therefore they should just write because I didn't know what sort of writer I was until I did it. Claire, it has been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. It's been great. Oh, I have. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at w4wpodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>